Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm talking with Carrie Noland, author of Merce Cunningham, After the Arbitrary. Carrie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Could you tell us a bit about your background as a scholar and how you became interested in Merce Cunningham? Uh, Sure. Uh, I think that uh, I have both a a personal background and a professional background uh, that compelled me to write this book. And um, in the case of the professional background, um, I was a scholar of poetry to begin with, but I uh, began becoming very interested in movement and wrote a book that can be considered a kind of theory of gesture called agency and embodiment. And um, after the publication of that book in 2009, I started thinking about case studies. I mean, applying my theory of gesture to a a choreographer. And uh, that coincided with um, a moment in my personal life. I grew up in Westbeth, which is where the Cunningham studio is, the Westbeth Artist Housing in the West Village on the Hudson Mm. River. Um, My mother uh, was uh, a theater director, and she actually had her theater in, (laughs) it was an improvisational theater, she had it in the studio that Merce moved into, I think in 1969, 1970. Uh, So she then had her studio in our apartment on the third floor. And um, she was beginning to be quite elderly and unwell and needed more help. And so I wanted to come up with a research project uh, that was closer to home, uh, to New York, uh, because I live in California. I'm a scholar of French literature uh, and the avant-garde, and I go to France all the time to do my research. And I couldn't do that if she was unwell. So uh, I wanted a research project closer to home, and I realized that the Cunningham archive was on the second floor of Westbeth. So one day I, <laughs> very I just, convenient. very convenient. I thought, okay, well, that's very close to home. And uh, since I'm on the third floor, it just meant going down one flight of stairs. And I thought, well, let me check this out. And I knocked on the door and David Vaughn came to the door and he was very cordial and very welcoming and uh, allowed me to take a look and, and see what was in the archive and watch a few videos, and I just became enamored. I had known Merce a little bit just as a a young girl growing up in the building, uh, seeing him in the elevator, saying my mother knew him. Uh, And I'd taken class as a teenager at his studio on the 11th floor. Uh, So I knew something about his technique, but really very little about his aesthetic. And um, so that was a great discovery, and and that's what led me to write the book. (laughs) I got the sense in your book that, you know, your your discoveries in the Cunningham archives kind of didn't fit in with the the scholarly understanding of Cunningham. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, I would say that what most surprised me 
when I began to systematically go through the folders for each dance uh, chronologically, um, what surprised me was the number of literary allusions uh, that I found in his papers. Um, you know, he's always contrasted with Martha Graham, that Martha Graham was the, you know, was interested in myth and that she was, uh, she based a lot of her dances on uh, heroes or heroines from myth or from uh, literary sources. And, and Cunningham was the opposite. He had no sources uh, in literature or in anything um, that can be considered a plot or a drama. And um, that was something that the archive told me pretty quickly was not the case <laughs> because I kept finding references uh, from very early on in Septad in 1953, uh, references to Krishna and the Gopis, um, then references to Finnegan's Wake and James Joyce, references to Dostoevsky for Antic Meat, um, references to films, um, to Einstein, uh, his Potemkin, um, later on to Godard films. Uh, the archive was packed with these illusions, these literary illusions and cultural illusions. And so I began to investigate further and think, hmm, maybe in his head when he was choreographing, not only was he using chance procedures to sequence the phrases, but he also had in mind a certain mov movement tone or vocabulary um, that was associated in his mind with uh, figures from uh, different kind of uh, mythologies um, and, and books. So that was the first discovery. And then I began, that led me to see contact um, among the dancers when I watched the, these recorded performances and went to see performances, it made me see that contact as pregnant with unraveled plots. <laughs> In other words, I began to see details that he had added to uh, what had been determined by his chance procedure, details in movement, details with respect to the gaze, details with respect to where the hand was placed um, that led me toward uh, uh, the construction of relationships among uh, the uh, dancers and, and kind of the roles they were playing on the stage. And, and as I went further in, the, in my research, I just found more and more to convince me that the <sighs> kind of the, the idée reçue, the received idea that we have of Cunningham, um, that he was not invested in telling a story or in evoking a romantic relationship or evoking a conflict uh, or evoking competition, evoking any kind of um, relational drama, that that simply didn't hold up for me. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you're right. It 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 made me go beyond. I think the uh, the received idea. And and do you see this as being sort of representative of of what we might think of as like a, a humanistic philosophy? I mean, you you talk about the idea that Cunningham has that we're already 
always in relationship, that you can't not be in relationship if you have two dancers on stage. Is, is there a kind of broader social or political or ethical dimension to that idea? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. Um, I'm not sure I know what you mean by humanistic uh, as opposed to what. Um, I think. Right. I yeah. think that's part of the question, though. I mean, you you, you <laughs> point out um, that in contrast to Cage, I mean, it, it's maybe possible to have, you know, abstract music without a human referent, but it's really not possible to have dance without a human referent because, after all, you are looking at human bodies. Right. That would be probably the point of departure uh, for him would be that as soon as you have a human body on stage and human beings watching that body uh, move, uh, they are going to attach meaning to it. Um, that, you know, as Merleau-Ponty, Maurice ponty the great uh, phenomenological philosopher said, we are condemned to meaning. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that whatever we see uh, or hear, uh, we tend to project affect onto it. Um, uh, if not, you know, an emotion like anger or fear, we might project an affect um, like s- slow and lyrical or uh, quick and uh, nervous making. <laughs> um, so uh, that would be the ground level, I would say. Um, but beyond that, I think think that he was interested at the beginning of his career in the relationships among his dancers uh, and also between himself and a particular dancer. Uh, I think he, and you know, I'm going out on a limb here, but I've tried very hard to provide uh, supporting evidence in my book. I think that he wanted to work through his own dilemmas uh, in his choreography. And he was also interested in finding new movement that he wouldn't have thought of on his own. And that was the role that chance procedures played for him. It allowed him to generate dance phrases and sequencing that he never could have come across on his own. At least that's what he thought. Um, but at the same time, and that's why I call it after the arbitrary, after having uh, come up with these random sequences of disarticulated movements, they become gestural again uh, in when he sees them performed. Uh, you, there's so many instances uh, when he would say, oh, now that you're dancing, uh, could you touch her this way instead? Or could you, um, uh, when you do the lift, could she fall in this other fashion? Because he saw the possibility for adding onto it what he saw. Uh, that's where the, if you want to say the human, I'm, I'm, I have a tr- trouble with that word because I can't, I don't know what wouldn't be human, that <laughs> uh, human in the sense of animal, <laughs> you know, what, mm-hmm. uh, what wouldn't be that? Uh, you can say, oh, technology isn't human, but human beings and even animals have always used tools. They've always had techniques. They've always had craft. They've always had prothesis. So I don't know when the human hasn't already been a technological being. So that would be my um, hesitation with your use of the term humanistic. (laughs) Sure. Um, And and you write about Cunningham's use of technology, including kind of, uh, 
choreography computer programs. Could you talk a bit about kind of what role technology played in, in his work? Yes. I think that going back even to dances that he composed in the late 50s, uh, there's already an interest in something like photography. I mean, he had numerous friends, including Robert Rauschenberg, coming into the studio and taking photographs of the dancers. And of course, you know, photography was hugely important uh, for the pub publicity for the promotion of the modern dancer. Um, you think of Martha Graham and Barbara Morgan, um, the kinds of photographs that were used uh, by someone like Ruth Saint-Denis to, to, um, to learn about dances from other cultures. There was an interest in photography as something that can capture movement uh, from very early on in modern dance. And Cunningham had his own approach to photography as a technology that allowed him to see his, even his own dances um, in a new light. And in one of my chapters, I talk about how he reintegrated photographs of previous dances into later dances or positions that had been photographed into later dances. Uh, because he thought that the camera lens showed him, uh, as Walter Benjamin calls it, the optical unconscious. W what is actually happening that we don't see because we're so used to thinking we know what we see? I mean, throughout Cunningham's career, he, he's fascinated by um, that which is not captured by stereotypes, that which is not captured by cliches, that which is not captured by mainstream plots, that which is not captured by um, uh, just uh, less mediated vision. Vision is always mediated in some way. But when you put on a, a when you look through a camera lens, or then later when he looks through a video camera lens, and then when he looks through what the menu of stored <laughs> postures and and movements um, that the life forms computer technology allowed him to see starting in 1991 when he could see it through a lens uh, he saw something different mm. and that I mean if you want to say that's more than human yes that's the assisted human if you will <laughs> uh, but that that meant something to him it, it gave him some new material to work with why do you think Cunningham avoided talking about the kind of expressive dimension of his work? Well, I would not want to speak for Cunningham. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there have been several theories. Uh, there's a, a fairly powerful theory uh, that was articulated by Jonathan Katz. I don't know if he's called, if he pronounces it Kates or not, K-A-T-Z, um, I think in the 90s. Uh, uh, that concerns the very repressive atmosphere, uh, homophobic atmosphere of the McCarthy era, which is, of mm. course, when, I mean, Cage and Cunningham started working together in the 40s, in the, the mid-40s, but when they began to work with Rauschenberg and Johns and kind of the, the 
high point um, of the kind of the years when they toured in the van. And that's the 50s and the 60s. And so this is the McCarthy era and the immediate post-McCarthy era when uh, people were really scared uh, to come out as, as homosexual. And so Katz's argument is that uh, part of the silencing of emotion, uh, part of the resistance to depicting um, male-male duets and relationships um, has to do with that repressive um, environment and wanting to um, avoid um, talking about the self. And then another theory has been that the abstract expressionists uh, of the 1950s were so openly uh, and almost um, instrumentally emotional that their cage had a reaction against that. You have Rauschenberg, you know, doing the white paintings and the red paintings and the black paintings uh, and, you know, Jasper Johns using, you know, imagery of numbers and flags, you know, a real effort to move away from explosive emotionally charged depictions uh, toward uh, something neutral uh, and Mm anti-subjective. That's another theory. Um, There's also the theory that his personality uh, was such that he tended to avoid confrontation. Uh, I've heard that from many, many of his dancers he did not like confrontation and, and would use other people, often John, to communicate unpleasant news <laughs> um, because he didn't want to be in a, a highly emotional conversation. Um, and that that was not his mode and that perhaps on the stage he had a kind of allergic reaction to Martha Graham's and, and many other, you know, modern dancers of the period, um, kind of the, the German, uh, you know, theater dance, um, Mm -hmm. modality, you know, a reaction against that. Uh, he said that he often, when he was dancing for Martha, that he felt, uh, imposed upon, he felt as if he were being directed to emote, on stage um, and to attach, to chain was his word, to chain certain movements to certain feelings. And he, that was oppressive to him. And I think there was a huge freedom in enjoying movement without it having to be understood as conveying a particular thing. Um, I, I feel like I'm asking a question slightly maybe against the grain of Cunningham's yeah. own intention here. But um, despite that kind of, um, you know, uh, striving towards a kind of affectless performance, do you think that there is something kind of noticeably queer about his choreography? I mean, I think we've moved enough enough past the kind of lavender scare era to be able to ask that yeah. question in, in good faith now. I want to address that, but before I do, um, I want to give you an example of um, what I, 
is affectless and what is not affectless before sure. we move on to the question of queer. Um, I Before I came online with you for this interview, I was watching a rehearsal of Nearly 90, which is super interesting. You know, that was the last piece he choreographed. Uh, it was performed in 2009. And there's two versions of that available on YouTube. There's a version with the musical score uh, done by Kosugi, among others. uh, And there's a version that's a rehearsal. So one is a performance with the musical score and the other is a rehearsal with no sound whatsoever. And if you watch the performance first, the movements seem much more abstract and mechanical because the score is... It's, uh, I think it's synthesized music. It's um, very hard to listen to, at least for me. And uh, it pushes the movement in a kind of, towards like the the range of the mechanical seeming. Mm -hmm. And then if you watch the rehearsal in total silence, it's not total silence actually, because you keep hearing the rub of the the foot against the floor. And when, you know, someone hits the floor with their um, hand, you hear the slap. I mean, it's it's wonderful sound. But what I saw there without the musical accompaniment um, were moments when, because there was no music, I could attend to the movement more carefully. And I saw at one point two um, dancers, a man and a woman, and the man is doing his turning sequence, and the woman is doing a very slow, extended arch. And at one moment, after the two sequences have been completed, the two phrases, the man ends up where his hand touches her arm. And in the rehearsal, he had to he didn't end up exactly where he was supposed to. So he was maybe an inch or two away from her arm. And so he had to reach out his arm further to touch her arm. He had to reach out his hand to touch her arm. And that is a very affectful moment that I could only see uh, when the music wasn't going and when they were in rehearsal. And so it wasn't as perfected. And for the, the choreographer had to have chosen to make sure that the man's phrase, uh, his turning phrase, ends with him touching the, the woman dancer, creates a contact that didn't have to be. The phrases could have ended and they could have not touched. So those kind of moments, I've seen them all the way throughout, um, little added things Uh, embraces or the turn of the gaze or just moments where the actual uh, chance procedure didn't demand contact or didn't demand that kind of uh, movement of the head. Uh, Those are inserted by the choreographer and that produces a kind of affective charge. Mm. And when we talk about queer, you know, I, I that word has so many uses right now in both popular culture and in academic culture. 
And I want to use it in a particular way. I want to ask you how you wanted to use it. <laughs> uh, but for me, um, the my best way to understand it is think about it in terms of a resistance to definition. Hmm. Uh, that to uh, aim for a queer aesthetic would be to refuse to conform to a kind of a identity politics uh, that insists that you be one thing. And that is what this kind of vacillation between the programmed, you know, something arrived at with an algorithm or something arrived at with like tossing a coin on the one hand, and the sensuality of the gestural, uh, that vacillation is to me a kind of queer vacillation. It's, it's, a, it's a refusal to land on any one side of the equation, either mm-hmm. the entirely mechanical or the entirely emotional, you know, there, or what Adorno called the Theodore Adorno, the Frankfurt school critic, what he uh, called the contrast between constructivism and expressionism. So I, I want to label that as queer. For me, the word queer helps us with that. Um, I'd love to hear from you what you meant by it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think you're right that it is a word that has many different uh, meanings and, and, and kind of valences. I think the idea of kind of like resisting um, authenticity seems very queer to me the kind of notion that like like you said you have to be one thing that kind of play with surface and depth feels Mm -hmm. very queer um and i think you see that in his work where it's sort of like you know um taunting you in a way in terms of saying you know are are you going to interpret this as being you know romantic and expressive or is this just you know mechanical dance and kind of never never kind of firmly coming out on one side or the other I guess. Yeah, I like that, what you've said at the beginning about the play with surface and depth. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me in the critique of authenticity. I love that because I think there's been a, something of a, a um, um, what do you call that? Not a flashback, but you know, a, um, a when when there, there's the pendulum swings too sure, far one sure. way and then it has to swing the other way. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, I'm not, of, I'm not, uh, I think I know what you mean, or, but I don't know exactly <laughs> what the word is. Oh, God. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. But uh, when something rebounds in the opposite direction. A backlash? Or? Backlash. Thank yeah. you. Backlash. Not flashback, but backlash. Yeah. Uh, I think there's been a bit of a backlash against uh, Cunningham because – there's been a recuperation of affect as important. Um, uh, the kind of neutrality and um, refusal of uh, of depth <laughs> uh, has become, uh, you know, a butt of critique and a desire to uh, to show uh, uh, emotion and. Um, kind of a politics of emotion on stage has returned. 
uh, and um, and that's on the queer side too. Uh, so, you know, I'm thinking of Harold, um, his work where he juxtaposes Judson church dance with uh, voguing and sure. kind of par- you know, I think it's called Paris is burning is the dance. And it's uh, a critique of the critique of authenticity, if you will. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> things get, get kind of complicated. Um, but certainly for, uh, you know, if you think about all the male female tension in Martha Graham as her version of authentic uh, relational emotion, <laughs> you can certainly see Cunningham wanting to uh, critique that um, to to forge a critique of authenticity by saying no, all that is very stereotyped, all that is very cliche. The authentic does not reside in that um, drama. Mm-hmm. I think one one thing that I found interesting about your book too is that you kind of expand the time frame in which Cunningham is typically um, analyzed. I, I, I guess I, th- I think of him mainly as being seen in the context of the fifties and maybe the sixties, but you kind of go further before and further after than, than a lot of the sources that I've read. Uh, how do you feel like our image of Cunningham changes? If we kind of look at the full spectrum of his work across, you know, six or seven decades? Well, uh, that's a really interesting question. And I think that each decade is very distinctive Hmm. He had preoccupations that are consistent and then others that are more narrow and uh, temporally framed. Uh, I want to answer that in two ways. I want to begin by saying how different the dances of the later period are are from the beginning. And then I want to say how similar they are. to answer it in two ways, uh, he came up with technical, if you will, uh, technical innovations that changed the look of the dances. So, for instance, in 1976 for Torse, he came up with what he called the weight shift method. And what that meant was that he uh, would come up with dance phrases with one to 64 different weight shifts. So Mm. the first dance phrase would only have one weight shift. And that means going from one foot to the other, for instance, the second phrase would have two weight shifts all the way up to 64. And he would write these down and then he would sequence them randomly. Hmm. So that phrase 31 might begin the piece, followed by phrase 17. So 31 weight shifts in the first phrase and 17 in the second, and so on and so forth. And that created a very particular look. So if you look at Toss, you you will see, and the whole thing is based on different things you can do with your torso. Um, You you will see a, a... a, uh, an emphasis on weight shifts and a kind of fluctuation between short and long phrases. Mm-hmm. And 
there's a peculiarity to that look again in 1991 when he started to compose with the Life Forms computer program. He is entering single poses into a memory bank. A few years later, uh, the uh, make, I'm sorry, I'm Carl Kaiser and I'm blanking on the Shelley, I'm blanking on her name, but the two people who worked with him on life forms, they were able to uh, come up with a, a new uh, design that allowed him to enter several movements or phrase into the menu, I mean, into the, the memory, so that that changed the way the dances came out. If you have to choreograph pose by pose by pose, it looks very different from set of movements by set of movements by set of movements. Hmm. And he, the, the, the work he did in the 90s is really quite distinctive because of the separation between the arms and the legs. There's absolutely no kinetic reverb. among the different parts of the body because they've been disarticulated in order to be entered into a memory of a computer program. The arms, if you look at those dances, look almost, I mean, to me, (laughs) you know, the the people who wait on the corner to to make arm movements to help stop traffic, you know, (laughs) they almost look like that. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but they have that kind of very, um, uh, Disarticulated, and, yeah, and, and and very limited number of positions for the arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, no port de bras, nothing like that. So they have a very peculiar look to them. Uh, when he was younger, he tended to be much more focused on his individual dancers and trying to create work for them. Whereas later on, he's doesn't know the dancers as well. There's more turnover. And so their idiosyncratic ways of moving, he's not going to focus on as much. He did a little bit, but not as much. So these are all the different, some of the different uh, points in the progression. But I also want to emphasize how much continuity there is. That's um, always striking to me. Um, when I see a dance from 1953, like Septet, with uh, these long-held configurations, you have five people all holding hands and and striking a, a pose that they hold for a couple of moments before they fold into the next one. Well, later on in Roratorio in 1983, that becomes what he called family portraits, uh, where you have the full company on stage that take a pose and hold it for a few seconds and all holding hands and then change, they, they mutate into a different pose. And I was very surprised to see that in nearly 90, in 2009, mm-hmm. uh, in Ocean. I mean, it, several dancers moving in these slow motion configurations. Um, I could go on. I mean, there's just so many continuities. Uh, when you study the uh, the corpus as a whole. Um, one of the things to me that's always been so fascinating about Cunningham is that many of his 
closest associates were artists in different disciplines. Uh, you know, obviously John Cage is a composer, uh, Jasper Johns and, uh, and Rauschenberg are, are painters. What do you think uh, Cunningham learned about choreography from these kind of non-choreographer um, friends and collaborators of his? Uh, okay, so I want to say that I am no expert on uh, Cage's music or Jasper John's and Rauschenberg's mm-hmm. uh, art. Uh, I am not an art historian and not a you know music historian. What I know about them is what I've learned in the course of writing this book <laughs> and for, of course cage is usually influential. I mean, that's, that goes without saying. And I think cage's interest in theater um, really came out of his association with the Cunningham company. But Rauschenberg is super important too. I mean, Rauschenberg had a wonderful eye for junk, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, for just picking up junk and making it into something very interesting to see. And when Rauschenberg became the artistic director of the company, I think that's in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, he brought that with him and Cunningham started to... Uh, he named one of his pieces collage. Uh, he uh, started to think about found movement. Uh, there's that wonderful uh, experiment uh, that they did together, Story, in 1963, while they were on tour, where uh, they were on tour in 1964, but they were performing this piece that Cunningham prepared for the tour, uh, where the set would change every night because or every place they went because Rauschenberg would make it out of what he found in that particular city Mm. and uh, that approach to found movement I think was uh, generative uh, for Cunningham and made a big difference later on um, when he was teaching choreography, something like Variations 5, where he drives a bicycle across the stage and uh, pots a plant and does a yoga pose. Um, These are Rauschenbergisms, if I may say. Um, And I think there's a a mutual um, influence on Rauschenberg. You know, he started to choreograph dances pelican is his most famous one i think that's 1965 um yeah he began to choreograph dances uh of his own so there's definitely cross currents here you mentioned that term theater um and and none of these artists were working in you know theater in the way that we might think of theater as being you know plays and and musicals uh but theater nonetheless was an important term for them. What did that term mean for Cunningham? Ooh, that's such a great question. <laughs> you know, maybe, it's it funny. maybe it'd be better to think about what, what theater didn't mean for him. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, when you asked that question, what popped in my head was um, 
an anecdote he tells about his years as a tap dancer and ballroom dancer when he was young and he was a student of Maud Barrett's in Centralia, Washington. And she would take them on like little mini vaudeville tours. And what he loved about uh, doing that with her was her her showmanship, her approach to the show must go on. And he quotes her saying one day when they didn't have any makeup, just pinch your cheeks and press your lips and we'll go on stage like that. You know, this kind of spirit of the theater. I think he loved the life of the theater uh, as, you know, as an actual building. I know he performed in a lot of other places, but the notion of spectacle, of being on stage, of having an audience, uh, theater in that way, you know, of performing. Um, And that that performance doesn't have to have the elements we normally think of as drama. You know, it doesn't have to have a climax. Uh, There don't have to be conventional plot lines. They don't have to be characters. Um, No one has to get married or die. (laughs) You know, Um, that's that's what theater meant to him. In fact, he he said once that Rauschenberg had a great sense of theater. And what he meant by that is putting things together in a way that attracts the eye. And that really, if I had to sum up what theater meant for Cunningham, that's what I would say, that it meant putting things together that attract the eye. Hmm. And that is that is kind of true of, of theater in, in its even more conventional sense, that it's, it is always a kind of hybrid art form, even if it's just a conventional mm. play. You know, there's there's the, the, the set design and the lighting design and the acting and the directing and the writing. Those are all separate art forms that come together to do to do something that we call theater. Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 spectacle. It takes in many of our senses at once. Yeah. I think, uh, and dance is innately theatrical because it already takes in many of our senses at once. I mean, you, the kinesthetic sense when you're watching, you, the way that your body um, takes in movement is different from the way that your eye is taking in movement. So, yeah, there's it's very hard for dance not to be theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Carrie Noland, I've I've so much enjoyed getting to talk to you about your book, uh, Merce Cunningham After the Arbitrary. Um, is, is there anything else that you're working on or that you've published since this book that you'd like our audience to know about? Well, uh, I've been actually uh, working on a response to uh, what dance scholars now call post-ephemerality, kind of the status of the reenactment, uh, and this has come up uh, frequently um, as I've worked with Cunningham's uh, trust, you know, the Verse Cunningham Trust, because they are, uh, at this point in time, very focused on keeping Cunningham's choreographies alive and in many different forms. And I hope some of the people listening were able to see one of the three productions of Night of the Hundred Solos, uh, which took place as a a centennial uh, celebration in L.A., London, and New York, three different productions with three different casts um, and three different um, 
directors and in this uh, reenactment, I want to call it, is it wasn't just a reconstruction. It was really a completely complete rethinking of what you could do with Cunningham, which is what I mean by reenactment. Uh, they chose many uh, dancers of color to perform, which is quite different from uh, what ac- occurred uh, when Cunningham uh, was in charge. Um, there was only ever one dancer of color uh, on the stage at any given time. Um, or I should say one black dancer, because sometimes there was a black dancer and maybe an, uh, some, uh, an Asian dancer on stage at the same time. But there's a conscious effort on the part of the trust right now to involve uh, dancers uh, of different ages, of different body types, uh, with diff- profile differently ethnically uh, and racially. Uh, and I think that's, a, a very, for me, a really interesting question about um, what, what, what are the limit points um, of a, of choreography, of a, of a choreographic um, kind of a, a corpus where, when does the choreography move beyond itself? Um, and those are the kinds of questions I've been thinking through, uh, and publishing on. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's one of the directions I'm going in. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. Well, thanks so much for being on new books and performing arts. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. And likewise. Thank you, Andy, for inviting me.